Welcome to the reading of the Quad City Times for Monday, September 4th. Welcome to the reading of the Quad City Times for Monday, September 4th, 2023. All material heard on IRIS is intended solely for the use of people with print disabilities. Welcome to the reading of the Quad City Times for Monday, uh, September 4th, 2023. All material heard on IRIS is intended solely for the use of people with print disabilities. Your readers today are Jeff Cassett and Carol Lockhart. Here's our first story. Carol? Thank you, Jeff. Emails show concerns. City worker and utility expressed worries over the wall. The city of Davenport released more than 2,000 emails to the Quad City Times Dispatch Argus in freedom of information requests that shed further light on the ongoing issues with 324 Main Street, and specifically its west wall, before it collapsed. Here are a few takeaways. Code Enforcement Officer Documented Conversation One Code Enforcement Officer documented in an email to himself May 30th a conversation he'd had with a colleague about 324 Main Street in the weeks prior. The officer, Tom Vanduel, wrote in his email that Anthony, known as Tony Hot, and another Code Enforcement Officer with the city showed him pictures of the exterior wall that showed just how compromised the, that portion of the building had become. He was frustrated and whispered to me that the whole side is going to come down, Vanderwill wrote in the May 30th email to himself. Vanderwill wrote that he told Tony that he needed to tell others, Rich Oswald, the director of Davenport's Neighborhood Services Department, or Beth Bringolf, um, the code enforcement and parking supervisor for the neighborhood services department. I responded, he said to Tony, saying that he needs to tell Beth or Rich, and Tony said, I have, and Rich told me to back off and don't worry about it. Vanderwill wrote, now that is what Tony told me, so I have no way of knowing for sure if that was said or not. I just thought I would document this for down the road, just in case. Vanderwill, Hot, and Oswald did not answer a request for comment from the Quad City Times. Assistant City Attorney Brian Heyer emailed to the Quad City Times that the city employees are not authorized to communicate with media regarding matters in litigation or subject to imminent litigation. Wold set up an emergency contact. Just one day before the building at 324 Main Street collapsed, Andrew Wold, the building owner, sent Oswald an email designating a man, giving his first name, as his emergency contact for the weekend at 324 Main Street. He has his phone on him in case of emergency. He has access to the entire building, Wold wrote in a May 27th email, of which the subject line was 324 Main Emergency Contact. In a review of the more than 2,000 emails regarding 324 Main Street between 
2020 and 2023, the May 27th email is the only one designating an emergency contact for the building. Quad City Times emails and calls to the emergency contact and WOLD went unanswered. Wall is losing some stability, engineer reports, on May 24th. Just a few days prior, May 23rd, a David Vallier, a professional engineer with Select Structural, had made a following follow-up visit to 324 Main Street after initially assessing the building and prescribing repairs in February. Vallier noted that large patches of clay brick facade, which are separating from the substrate, that appear ready to fall imminently, which may create a safety hazard to cars or passerbys, passersby. He recommended securing bricked-over window openings that were bulging outward by several inches and look poised to fall, and replacing the clay brick facade with reinforced concrete masonry units. Valier gave instructions on how to bring down the brick facade in a safe, controlled manner. He documented a second problem just north of the two window openings and said the wall appears to be losing some stability and is causing deformation. An interior gauge steel furring and drywall bulged as if a large downward force is acting upon them. The report, emailed May 24th, did not specify whether the building needed to be evacuated. In February, Valier said the building was not in immediate danger. In March, the fire marshal's report was lack of responsiveness unacceptable. In a letter dated March 13th, Fire Marshal Jim Morris issued a letter detailing a lengthy list of fire code violations, threatening a progressive fine and possible rental license revocation for life safety violations. Those included smoke detectors more than 10 years old, fire doors that don't latch, non-functioning emergency lights and exit signs, garbage in hallways, and accumulation of combustible material in the basement utility closets. Similar violations were found February 6th, and a reinspection February 28th found nothing had been corrected, Morris said. The lack of responsiveness with this property is unacceptable, Morris wrote. This is an R2 building that has many occupants and requires the life safety equipment to be fixed and inspected as required by code. Mid-American concerned about Wall's integrity in February and March. Mid-American and Energy Utility refused to work on a gas meter at the West Wall in February and March because of concerns of the Wall's integrity and whether scaffolding would protect workers. On February 3rd, Chief Building Official Trishna Pratum emailed a representative with Mid-American with a copy of Select Structural's report determining the Wall was not and imminent danger. The Mid-American representative responded by email, urging Pratton to ensure that the scaffolding would be erected by a professional scaffolding contractor. The attached report addresses building integrity but provides no guidance on the integrity of the wall. Mark Weir, the Mid-American representative, wrote, scaffolding should extend up to the base of the beam mentioned in the report so that it secures the entire section of the wall in question. As soon as we have the scaffold report in hand, we will get the gas work included, uh, scheduled. 
Later that day, Mark Weir wrote to Pridham and Wold that he had received a picture of the scaffolding that Wold had erected, but it wasn't enough. My gas crew leader looked at your picture and refused to work under it, even if it was tall enough, Weir wrote. We do not have the power to force our crews to work in an area that they deem unsafe. He added, scaffolding constructed by a qualified scaffold builder would satisfy the workers that the area is safe for work. After speaking on the phone to with, with Wold, Weir emailed a summary of their February 3rd conversation. He said MidAmerican agreed to wait to update the gas regulator until after repairs were complete, an estimated three weeks. Therefore, the requested scaffolding below is not required to protect our workers. Weir wrote, the protective structure constructed and shown in the picture will be sufficient for the interim. I have requested Andrew to install diagonal 2x4 bracing to improve its structural integrity. Note, this is not an endorsement of the structure built or a waiver of liability. Mid-American Energy Company accepts no liability if the wall collapses and damages our equipment. By March 27th, Weir said there was still no scaffolding inspection tag and the scaffolding was far too far away to provide protection for his gas crew. Although he noted a beam above the wall had been supported and majority of wall section removed, from a visual inspection there still appears to be loose masonry over the meter set and one window that appears it could fall out of the brick, Weir wrote. And the final section, Wold decides to finance wall repairs personally. <coughs> Excuse me. In March, emails show Bi-State Masonry was off the job of West Wall repairs. The Bi-State representatives told Pradham it was because of costs. Pradham held a meeting with Wold in late March and followed up with emails to Wold. Wold asked the city for a delay to restart needed repairs on the West Wall of 324 Main Street until June 1st to secure financing. But emails show Wold decided to finance the repairs himself. April 3rd, Wold emailed Pradham and Chris Belzer with by state saying, I will now be funding this personally. By state will resume work sometime this week. By state is seeking nearly $100,000 from Wold in the form of mechanic lien on the property for work done from February 15th to May 10th. Jeff? Here's a salute to labor, <clears throat> progress, and unity. Founder to lead 40th Quad City Labor Day Parade. Mike Malstrom started the Quad City Labor Day Parade in 1983. In honor of the 40th anniversary this year, he's been chosen to be the Grand Marshal. The idea behind a parade, he said, was to celebrate one another. At the time, unity was not a common theme. Back in 83, when we started it, <clears throat> a lot of the unions had a hard time talking to each other, but we have to stick together, Malstrom said. If we can't communicate, we'll run into doomsday. We'll all, but we all had one thing in common at the, that point in time, and that was Congressman Lane Evans. U.S. Representative Lane Evans, the Democrat from Illinois, was a Rock Island native who spent 24 years in office before opting not to run for re-election in 2006 due to his failing health. Politico reported at the time, 
Evans was first elected in uh, 1982 and served 12 terms. He died of complications due to Parkinson's disease in 2014. Malmstrom said Evans was favored by local unions and veterans because of his support for both and ability to bring people together from both sides of the aisle. That was one guy and one individual we could all get our circle around and we could communicate with each other, he said, adding the whole goal was to show the region that everyone from letter carriers to machine operators could unify. We had all these unions that could join forces, and you might say Lane was the leader, Malstrom said. Union membership is falling nationally. Dan Gosa, president of the Quad City Federation of Labor, said more than 100 different unions operate in the Quad Cities area. For a region this size, that number is about average, but the organization is always open to more joining the fold, he said. Union membership has been steadily falling since 1983, according to the Bureau of Labor Statistics. Back when Malmstrom first started the parade, the union membership rate nationally was about 20.1%. By 2022, that number was nearly slashed in half at 10.1%. At that time, in the early 80s, unions across the nation were divided, Malmstrom said. In many cities, he said, tensions were high among unions, and if something did not change, the same could happen here in the Quad Cities. I could see that if we didn't pull together and work things out and at least sit around and talk to each other, we were going to head the same direction, he said. For example, Plumbers and pipe fitters at the time were on a decent pay scale, Malstrom said, but but they had to pay their own benefits. As a member of UAW 65 at John Deere Harvester Works in East Moline, all his benefits were built into his contract. On paper, most people only noticed the difference in pay and did not understand the difference in pay was able to make up for the benefits the pipe fitters had to pay out of pocket. Once union leaders were able to communicate and hash out the differences, they were able to get themselves on a path to unity, he said. Solidarity is the key across unions. The fact of the matter is when we have solidarity that's unifying for all unions, Malstrom said. I can think back when I worked with some of the business agents from around the outside unions and we all pulled together to show the community that, we, that we're more united than not. The attitude around unions and tradesfolk is still evolving, Gosa said. In the Quad Cities, the building trades have started to see growth. In July, local Union 25 plumbers and pipe fitters broke a personal record for the largest number of apprentices at 215. In a typical year, the program assigns 30 to 40 apprentices, a coordinator said at the time. I think people are starting to see when you're in a union, it's not just one person. You have hundreds of people behind you, Gosa said. It's better when you're together. Unions are partnering with groups. Locally, tradespeople are attending local career fairs and partnering with organizations like the NAACP and LULAC to visit and tour high schools to get students interested in internships. A lot of 
I think a lot of it, too, is parents and are leading it, Gosa said, adding the idea around the need for college degrees is changing. As long as we keep promoting these things and our advocates as well, it's helping these kids out. Unifying everyone across multiple generations was always Malmstrom's goal as well. After some time in his own union, he found himself involved with the UAW Community Action Program, the political arm. A friend of his was uh, a friend of his was the chairman of the committee and on political education, and the pair worked together to align the different unions in the area, sticking together to support candidates. So many times we couldn't agree on who we wanted to put our support behind on local elections and federal elections, but it's very important we stick together on that stuff because even though we may stick together on smaller issues, we need to get together and join forces on the larger issues, he said, citing Medicaid, Medicare, and Social Security as examples. Gosa said the last few years have been especially hard for unions on the Iowa side, as they are constantly attacked in the public sector. The difference between the two states is night and day, he said, making it harder to retain and grow Iowa unions. Unions protested Iowa's loosening of child labor laws. One major issue Iowa labor unions fought recently was the loosening of the child labor laws. In late February, union workers gathered in the state's capital to protest these changes. We're drawing a line in the sand now, said Charlie Wishman, president of the Iowa Federation of Labor. Our kids are not for sale. We are not. We are not selling our kids out into the multinational corporations for profit and cheap labor. Our kids are not for sale. In March, the Quad City Federation of Labor held a rally at the UFCW local hall in Davenport to protest the changes. Iowa Governor Kim Reynolds signed the heavily revised youth labor bill into law. Gosa said the union was against the change because of the dangerous nature of the jobs and being of the opinion a 40-hour work week was not suitable for minors. These blows can be major setbacks, but the influx of new apprentices has helped to balance the negatives, he said. Carol? Thank you, Jeff. And Disney wants to narrow the scope of lawsuit to free speech. Disney wants to narrow the scope of its federal lawsuit against Governor Ron DeSantis to just a free speech claim that the Florida governor retaliated against the company because of its public opposition to a state law banning classroom lessons on sexual orientation and gender identity in early grades. Disney on Friday asked a federal judge for permission to file an amended complaint focusing just on the First Amendment claim and leaving to another state court lawsuit questions about the legality of agreements the company signed with Disney World's governing district, then made up of Disney supporters. The agreements were signed before DeSantis and the GOP-controlled Florida legislature took over the government body in the spring. The agreement shifted control of design and construction at the theme park resort from new DeSantis appointees on the board of the Central Florida Tourism Oversight District, known as CFTOD. They shifted it to Disney, 
the DeSantis appointees are now challenging the legality of the agreements in state court. Disney faces concrete, imminent, and ongoing injury as a result of CFTOD's new powers and composition, which are being used to punish Disney for expressing a political view, the Disney federal court motion said. The revised complaint would challenge this unconstitutionalized weaponization of government by seeking a declarative judgment that will allow Disney to pursue its future in Florida free from the ongoing retaliatory actions of the CFTOD board, Disney said. U.S. Judge Alan, District Judge Alan Wenzer on Friday rejected Disney's motion to narrow the scope because of a procedural rule requiring Disney attorneys to confer with DeSantis attorneys before filing such a request. An email seeking comment was sent to Disney attorneys on Sunday. The Disney request, as well as other recent motions filed in the state case, demonstrate how the fates of the two lawsuits have become intertwined, especially after Disney filed a counterclaim in the state case asserting many of the same claims made in the federal case. Jeff? Here's a recap of the week in Iowa. <clears throat> in the news, the Iowa AG appeals non-English voter documents ruling. Iowa Attorney General Brenna Byrd filed an appeal in an effort to stop county auditors from printing voting materials in languages other than English. The appeal comes after a June court ruling that reversed a long-standing precedent and cleared the way for county auditors to print voter registrations and other forms in non-English languages. The lawsuit hinges on the English Language Reaffirmation Act, a 2002 law that requires all state documents in Iowa to be printed in English. One exception is if any language is used to secure a constitutional right. A judge ruled in June that non-English voter materials could be printed under that exception. Reynolds won't start restrictions. Iowa Governor Kim Reynolds says she will not reinstate any new COVID-19 restrictions as cases are again increasing around the country. Local COVID surges have prompted a couple colleges in the country to institute short-term mitigation measures, but no states have indicated an intent to bring back masking requirements or other restrictions. The state drought is the worst in a decade. Iowa's overall dryness reached its worst point since 2013 last week, according to the U.S. Drought Monitor. High heat and low rainfall has contributed to significant drought conditions this summer, and about 80% of Iowa was in drought conditions. The panel looks to reduction in state boards. A panel com convened to reevaluate Iowa's boards and commissions recommended more than 100 of them be cut or consolidated into other boards during a meeting last week. The committee will hold a public hearing before making its final recommendation, which must be passed by the legislature before becoming law. Among those slated to be cut are the Iowa Council on Homelessness and the Midwifery Advisory Council, along with a number of boards that are no longer meeting regularly. Many health-related boards will be absorbed by the Health and Human Services Council. 
Democrat elected auditor in Warren County. Warren County voters ousted their Republican auditor, a position that oversees elections, that had shared conspiracy theories about the 2020 elections online in favor of Democrat Kim Sheets in a special election last week. David Whipple had been serving as auditor since June when he was appointed by the county's board of supervisors. And finally, the county to cover contraception. Johnson County became the largest, the latest county to cover emergency contraception costs for victims of rape as Attorney General Brenna Byrd has indefinitely paused her office's practice of covering the costs. There are 160 pending reimbursement requests statewide, totaling about $7,000. Carol? And uh, Quad Cities School Board Report Card. Davenport Community School District, August 28th. All board members present. The meeting kicked off with a presentation on the district's upcoming Success Week, which aims to inspire students in their future college or career planning across all grade levels. Success Week for grades K through, five, K through 8 will focus on building foundational skills, reaching benchmark proficiencies, and high school preparation. For district high school juniors, this will include a capstone testing week for entry assessments for students' post-secondary goals. Capstone testing week will offer ACT, ASVAB, ALEKS, and work keys assessments to students during the week of March 18, 2024. To kick off the week, the district will also host author and speaker Joe Beckman for students and community members on that Monday. Board Secretary Brenda Thee then gave a reminder of the upcoming school board elections on Tuesday, November 7th, 2023. Those interested in running for Davenport School Board can pick up a candidate's packet from her now. Nomination papers must be filed with the between August 28th and September 21st, 2023. For da five Davenport School Board members have seats up for election, President Dan Gossa, Vice President Karen Klein-Jerome, and Directors Linda Hay, Kent Postgen and Kent Barnes. Additional election information and candidate packets are available online. Uh, the board unanimously approved all items requiring actions and highlights a $181,200 bid from ECCO Echo Midwest Incorporated for asbestos abatement at West High School. A $534,000, oops, uh, Five, yeah, $534,339.59 purchase from workspace for new classroom and building furniture at Harrison Elementary. A $176,071.13 purchase also from workspace for new teacher desk, chairs, and media center furniture at Jefferson Elementary. An agreement with the goodwill of the Heartland for its Opportunity Accelerator Occupational Training Programs this will help the district fill food service and custodial positions across buildings. The board then reopened its discussion on district communications, aiming to narrow its path forward in terms of strategic communication and whether an internal versus external approach is preferred. Currently, the district employs outside firm 
hashtag communications. Board members' opinions varied on the issue of external versus internal communications, although several supported a hybrid model and some suggested hiring at least one international communications staff member. Most also expressed that the district's website needs improvement. The board will vote on the district's communication plan next meeting. Discussions shifted to the following phase one long-range fertility plan projects, artificial turf fields at West Central and North High Schools, additions and renovations to Sudlow Intermediate School with an alternative proposal to build an entirely new building. Representatives from Bray Architects, the district's contracted long-range facilities planning firm, presented on the Sudlow project. At a projected cost of $57,593, no, $57,593,142, the proposed addition and renovations to Sudlow would require a target building area of 160,782 square feet for completion. Jeff? No obituaries were published in today's issue of the Quad City Times, so we'll review yesterday's obituaries, of which there are several. <clears throat> First, Mark Myrison. Mark Patrick Myrison, age 66, of Ocala, Florida, passed away on August 8th. Funeral service will be held at 10 a.m. September 9th <clears throat> at Christ the King Catholic Church in Moline. Visitation will be prior to the service at 9 a.m. Per his wishes, cremation rites were accorded at Countryside Funeral Home in Anthony, Florida, following his passing. In lieu of flowers, memorials may be made to the charity of your choice in Mark's name. Mark was born March 17, 1957, in Rock Island, Illinois, and youngest son of the late Rene and Catherine Van Ho Myerson. Mark was a retired Illinois State Trooper with 27 years of service, during which he was very active in the Illinois FOP and, and served as Vice President of the Union. Mark was a world traveler who was able to visit India and Ireland in early 2023. He was a wonderful storyteller, an avid golfer, an active member of his Euchre Club. He leaves behind to cherish his memory his devoted wife of 34 years, June Osuza, or June D'Souza, a daughter, Catherine, and spouse Anoop Darna, siblings Louise Capes, Daniel, and spouse Christine Myerson, Stephen, spouse Barbara Myerson, Gregory Myerson, and numerous nieces and nephews. George Stanley Roberts, age 73, of Moline, passed away Friday, September 1st, at his home, surrounded by his family. Funeral services will be 10 a.m. on Friday, September 8th, at Esterden Mortuary and Crematory Limited in Moline. The visitation will be from 4 to 6 p.m. Thursday at the funeral home. Burial will be at Moline Memorial Park. Memorials may be given to the family for a fund to be established. George was born on March 31, 1950, in Moline, the son of Harlan and Glenna 
Aiton Roberts. He graduated from Moline High School in 1968 and later from Marycrest College. He served in the Illinois National Guard for eight years. George was a longtime owner and operator of Moline Motors. He loved coaching his children in youth baseball and was an avid Milwaukee and Atlanta Braves fan. George enjoyed watching old movies, attending stock car races, and spending time with his family, especially his grandkids. Survivors include his wife, Pamela and Pamela Alleman, children, Kurt and spouse Hannah Roberts of New York, Steve and spouse Lindsay Roberts of Bettendorf, Brittany, spouse Robert Moses of Rock Island, grandchildren, Sebastian, Elliot, Gunnar Sawyer, his brother David and spouse Susan Roberts of San Pedro, California. He was preceded in death by his parents and sisters, Anna Fontenoy and Betty Duis-Polaire. Memories may be shared online by visiting esterdahl.com. Betty Jo Davis, 88, of Auburndale, Florida, formerly of the Quad Cities area, passed away Thursday, August 24, 2023, at Lakeland Hospice House in Lakeland, Florida. Memorial services will be at 11.30 a.m. Friday, September 8th, at Van Ho Funeral Home, East Moline. Visitation will be one hour prior to the services. Entombment will be at R.I. National Cemetery, Arsenal Island, Memorials may be made to Good Shepherd Lakeland Hospice House. Betty Jo Mulder was born February 27, 1935, in Matthews, Missouri, a daughter of Curtis and Oralee Mulder Harden. She married Ronald Davis on January 8, 1977, in East Moline, Illinois. She was a 15-year member of ABWA. She was an entrepreneur, owning gift wrap shops in Atlanta and a market in Tennessee. Betty was known for her smile and loved being around people. She loved cards, games, and crafts. She joined Welcome Wagon, volunteered for many years at homeless shelters, and helped serve community Thanksgiving dinners. She is survived by her husband, Ron, of Auburndale, Florida, children Lori and spouse Don Nurden of Texas City, Texas, Mark and spouse Shelley Niels of Lakeland, Florida, Dan and spouse Joyla Davis of Sublette, Illinois, Steve and spouse Robin Davis, New Smyrna Virch, Florida, and Jennifer and spouse Mike Mason of Roswell, Georgia, six grandchildren and six great-grandchildren. Betty was preceded in death by her daughter, Tracy Neal's son, Jeffrey Neal's sister, Louisa Mulder, and her parents. Online condolences may be expressed at vanho.com. And in Durant, Vernon C. Volkers, age 78, of Durant, Iowa, passed away on Thursday, August 31, 2023, at his home. A celebration of life will be held from 3 to 6 p.m. on Tuesday, September 5, 2023, at the Durant American Legion. Burial will take place at a later date in Durant Cemetery. Memorials may be directed to Durant Fire Injures Firefighters Incorporated in his memory. Online condolences may be left at www.bentleyfuneralhomes.com. 
Vernon was born June 8, 1945, the son of John and Maxine Umberden Stock, Volkers, in Davenport. He graduated from Durant High School with the class of 1964. Vernon married his high school sweetheart, Donna Geyer, on April 3, 1965, in Durant. Vernon started his plumbing career with North Duff Plumbing in Durant. Vern and Donna established Volker's Plumbing in 1976. Vern worked alongside his son Tim until retiring in 2014. After retiring, Vern worked for Schwartz Excavating. He was a 25-year member of the Durant Firefighters, serving as fire chief for six years. Vern enjoyed the outdoors, especially boating, fishing, and camping on the Cedar River. He also enjoyed classic cars, especially Corvettes, and was an avid Iowa Hawkeye fan. Vern will be lovingly remembered by his wife Donna, two sons, Jeff and spouse Wendy Volkers of Fisherville, Virginia, and Tim and spouse Emily Volkers of Durant, four grandchildren, Chase Volkers, Carter Volkers, Katie Volkers, and Ashley Devonick, a sister Linda Danielson of Davenport, and two brothers-in-law, Wayne and spouse Jan Geyer and Larry and spouse Diane Geyer. Vern was preceded in death by his parents and one son, Brian Volkers, his stepmother Alice Volkers, his mother and father-in-law Harry and Audrey Geyer, stepsister and brother-in-law Myrna and Ed Benke. And from Davenport, Terry Moon, 79, of Davenport, Iowa, peacefully passed away Thursday, August 31st, 2023 at Hope Creek Nursing and Rehab after a long battle with Alzheimer's disease. There will be no memorial service at this time and will be decided on a later date. Memorials may be made to the family. Online condolences may be expressed at www.rungemortuary.com. That's R-U-N-G-E mortuary.com. Originally from Rock Island, Illinois, Terry graduated from Rock Island High School, class of 1961. He served as a staff sergeant in the National Guard until 1970. Terry was a hard worker. He retired from John Deere Foundry as a metal pattern maker. He spent many years at Black Hawk Foundry. Terry was always interested in police work. He was in the Junior Police as a kid and the Citizen Police Academy in DeWitt, Iowa. Terry had a quick wit and great sense of humor. He enjoyed making others laugh. He was kind, gentle, and loved spending time with his family. Terry liked being outdoors and kept his lawn perfectly manicured. Those left to celebrate his life are his daughters, Stephanie Moon of Davenport, Iowa, and Tara Sean Green of Florida, brother of Greg and spouse Susan in Wisconsin, ex-wife and caretaker, Bobby Moon, in Davenport, Iowa, and several nieces and nephews. He also leaves behind his cat, Garth, who was a special part of his life. Jeff? Beverly Jean Rome, age 91, passed away on Sunday, August 27th, at Silvercrest Senior Living. A funeral service will be held at 11 a.m. on Thursday, September 14th, at Wirtz Funeral Home, Visitation will begin at 10 a.m. and conclude at time of service. Beverly will be laid to rest at Fairmount Cemetery. Memorial contributions may be left to St. Jude Children's Hospital. 
Online condolences and fond memories may be expressed at wirtzfh.com. Beverly Ham was born March 25th, 1932 in Clorinda to Trula Hazelton and Leonard Ham. She joined Craig Rome in married union on July 2nd, 1952. Together they had four children in 61 cherished years before Craig passed in 2013. When the children were young, Beverly spent her years at, as a full-time mother. She later worked at Northwest Fabrics for 25-plus years. Beverly found much of her joy in loving and caring for others. She was an amazing cook and hostess for all the holiday events. There was no such thing as an empty stomach with Beverly around. In fact, she was lovingly nicknamed the food pusher. She was involved in all the kids' activities and supported them in their endeavors. In her spare time, she enjoyed bowling, cross-stitch, and boating. In later years, she and Craig enjoyed lots of camping on the river and trips to Disney World. Those left to carry on Beverly's memory include her children, Terry, uh, spouse uh, Lon Warnicky, Duncan, Suzette, spouse Tony Williams, Morgan, Douglas, spouse Lisa Rome, Tim, spouse Becky Rome, grandchildren Jessica, spouse Steve Merritt, Jody, spouse Michael Brack, Lindsay, spouse Devin Olson, Duncan, Evan, spouse Alicia Rome, Dylan, spouse Mary Rome, Mike, spouse Karina Walter, Tony, spouse Andrea Hebe, uh, Keith, and spouse Taylor Hebe, and 21 great-grandchildren, and her sister Joy, spouse Herbert Malstrom. Beverly was preceded in death by her parents and her, t and her loving husband, Craig. Wilmer Frederick Will Bauer, age 82, died unexpectedly at home on August 31st. Services will be held at 11 a.m. on Wednesday, September 6th at Wirtz Funeral Home. Visitation will begin at 10 a.m. and conclude at time of service. Online condolences and fond memories may be expressed at wirtz.com. Will was born in Riverside, New Jersey in 1941. He married Emily or Cindy Walker in Jefferson City, Missouri, 1962. He worked for 35 years for John Deere, including Industrial Equipment Division, Davenport Works, and Construction Equipment Division. He retired in 2001 as a Deere Area Parts Marketing Manager in Columbus, Ohio. He was an Air Force veteran. He's survived by his wife, Emily, Cindy, and daughters, Teresa, Terry, and her husband, Christian J. Gens, Longgrove, and Christine Christie, and her husband, Brad Dose of St. Louis, Missouri. Grandchildren, Walker, Aurora, Alana, that's Joe Broderson, is her spouse, Owen, and Wyatt Gens and Elizabeth, Ellie, and Emily Dose of St. Louis, and cousin Barbara and her husband, Aaron Harvey of Dana, Indiana. 
He was preceded in death by his parents, Alice and Wilmer F. Bauer Sr. In lieu of flowers, we'll ask that an act of kindness or an expression of caring be offered to a charity of your choice. And uh, our next obituary is from Davenport. Fred David Johnson, Jr., 82, of Davenport, passed away at home Monday, August 28, 2023. Visitation will be held from 3 to 5 p.m. on Tuesday, September 5, 2023, at Halligan McCabe DeVry Funeral Home. Private burial will be held at a later date. Fred was born March 2, 1941, in Chicago, Illinois, to Fred and Catherine Hoysh Johnson, Sr. At age four of four years, Fred was living with his father's cousins, primarily Henry and Marjorie Clow Shoemaker, and later at the Soldier and Sailor's Home in Normal, Illinois. After graduation from Rock Island High School in 1959, Fred enlisted in the Air Force, where he became a jet engine mechanic and spent three years in Germany. Fred met Donna Deerthridge in April of 1964, proposed on July 2, 1964, and they were married November 28, 1964. They both agreed that a good marriage took patience and a good sense of humor. Fred worked for John Deere for 30 years, 24 years at Deere Dubuque Works. Fred and Donna had four sons, Keith, whose wife was Marlene Johnson, Matthew Johnson, Stephen and Tracy Johnson, Jonathan and Krista Johnson, and raised their oldest grandson, Timothy. They have nine grandchildren and eight great-grandchildren. Fred is preceded in death by his son, Stephen David Johnson, siblings Patricia, Donald, David, and Christine, mother, father, stepfather, and stepmother. He is survived by his wife, Donna, sons Keith, Matthew, and Jonathan, grandchildren, great-grandchildren, sister, Lorene Wells of Nevada, or Nevada, I'm not sure which, Regina Baker of California, brother of brother Willie Johnson of California, nieces and nephews all over the country. Fred will be missed by all. Other remembrances may be expressed at www.hmdfuneralhome.com. And from Bettendorf, Joan McHenry, Joan L. McHenry, 89, of Davenport, Iowa, passed away on Thursday, August 31st, 2023, after a brief illness. Private funeral services will take place at a later date. In lieu of flowers, memorials may be made to King's Harvest Animal Shelter. Online condolences may be expressed at www.runge Mortuary Company. Joan was born February 7th, 1934, in Davenport, Iowa, one of four children to Lewis and Catherine Bieber Bennett. She was united in marriage to Richard J. McHenry in 1968. Joan and Dick loved Hawaii. They made numerous winter trips to the Big Island. Joan is survived by sister Kathy and husband Randy Myers of Bluegrass, Iowa, stepchildren Jean, wife Normal McHenry of Arizona, Karen, husband Paul of Drescher of Wisconsin, and Sharon and husband Dean White of Bettendorf, Iowa, along with numerous nieces, nephews, great nieces, and great nephews. 
Maryland, Re, Maryland Rita Geertz, age 91, of Davenport, passed away Monday, August 28th at the Davenport Lutheran Home. <clears throat> Services will be Wednesday, September 6th at 10 a.m. at the Runge Mortuary. Visitation will be Tuesday from 5 to 7 p.m. at the mortuary. Her final resting place will be in Davenport Memorial Park Cemetery. Memorials may go to the Genesis Visiting Nurses. Marilyn was born Davenport on March 4, 1932, a daughter of Harry and Catherine Moore Haston. On October 22, 1955, she married James Jim Geertz of Davenport. He preceded her in death <clears throat> September 25, 2020. He worked for von Maar, she worked for Von Maar for 11 years. She also served as a respite volunteer. In early years, Marilyn and Jim enjoyed bowling and square dancing. In 2000, the couple moved to Jacksonville, Florida, and in 2015 returned to the Quad Cities to be closer to family. Faith was very important to her, and she attended several area Catholic churches over the years. She enjoyed sewing, gardening, word search puzzles, and most of all, spending time with her grandchildren. She survived by daughters Roseanne, uh, nicknamed Rose, and husband Joe Stark of Las Casas, Tennessee, and Cynthia, or Cindy, and spouse David Hannum of Pasco, Washington. Sons Joseph, uh, nicknamed Joe, and spouse Barb Geertz of Davenport, and Gerald Geertz of Granbury, Texas. Eight grandchildren, nine great-grandchildren. His sister Phyllis and spouse Dave Gould of Bettendorf and numerous nieces and nephews. Along with her parents and husband, Marilyn was preceded in death by a son, Jeffrey. Daughter-in-law, Jerry Geertz, and siblings, Richard Red Haston and Karen Staub. Ruth J. Keeter, age 90, of Bettendorf, passed away peacefully on August 30th at Clarissa C. Cook Hospice House. Funeral Mass will be held on Tuesday, September 5th at 10.30 at St. John of Lanny Catholic Church. Visitation will be before the service starting at 9.30. Memorials in Ruth's name may be made to St. John of Lanny Catholic Church, Clarissa C. Cook Hospice House, <clears throat> or King's Harvest Pet Rescue. Ruth was born March 11, 1933, in Savannah, Illinois, to Elmer and Yvonne Ruth Wells. She graduated from Hanover High School in Hanover, Illinois. She was united in marriage to Larry Keeter on June 9, 1956, and they made their home in Hanover, <clears throat> Illinois, later moving to Bettendorf in 1975. Ruth worked for the Savannah Army Depot and the Rock Island Arsenal before retiring in 1988. She was a member of the St. John Vlani Church in Bettendorf. <clears throat> Ruth and Larry enjoyed traveling, especially their trips to Las Vegas. Above all else, she enjoyed spending time with her family, especially her grandchildren and great-grandchildren. She'll be dearly missed by her children, Susan, husband Howard Loff of Bettendorf, Barbara spouse Gary Dilla of Iowa City, and Joe and spouse Karen Keeter of Bettendorf. Five granddaughters, Sarah and spouse Dustin Heinink, 
Karen and spouse Pat McMahon, Carissa and spouse Eric Lindquist, Christine and spouse Mark Bullock, and Alana Keeter. Eleven great-grandchildren, Claire, Caroline, and Kennedy McMahon, Jacob and Ethan Lindquist, Hayden, Harper, and Stella Hunink, and William Tucker and Barrett Bullock, and her brother, T.J., spouse Sandy Wells. She was preceded in death by her husband, Larry, and her parents. Online condolences may be left to Ruth's family by visiting her obituary at weirtsfh.com. And finally, Sarah McDaniel. A private celebration of life will be held at a later date for Sarah A. McDaniel, age 68, of Davenport. Sarah passed away on Monday, August 28th at her home in Davenport. Sarah Audrey uh, Gephardt was born on July 1st, 1955 in Fort Dodge, the daughter of Merle and Mary West Eberson. She married Albert Jean McDaniel in Davenport on February 22nd, 1991. He preceded her in death on April 2nd, 1991. Sarah found joy in the company of her dogs, Thor and Odin, outdoor activities, camping, fishing, and spending time with her family. Survivors include her daughters, Heather and spouse Michael Fisher of Davenport, Missy Anderson and her fiancé Mickey Jackson of Rock Island, grandchildren Joshua and spouse Bailey Fisher, Alex Anderson, brother Daryl, and spouse Betty Eberson of Dunard, California, and two cousins, Avery and spouse Sheila Shipley and Barry Shipley, both of Davenport. She was preceded in death by her parents and her husband, Albert. Online condolences may be shared with the family at McGinnisChambers.com. And it is... Uh, Time now for, uh, we have just a brief moment for a opinion piece. Let's celebrate workers and their history. We appreciate all those who built this country, who better society, and do their jobs well. Many may think of Labor Day weekend as a chance for a last fling of summer. While it is that, indeed, it's also important to remember and observe the roots of Labor Day. The first holiday was celebrated on September 5, 1882 in New York City in accordance with the plans of the Central Labor Union. Some 10,000 workers assembled to march from City Hall to Union Square after which they and their families gathered in Reservoir Park for a picnic, concert, and speeches. That uh, is the, all of the opinion piece we'll be able to read today. Uh, and that brings us to the end of the Quad Cities Times. I'm Jeff Cassett. My partner at the microphone has been Carol Lockard. You can listen to Iris programs on any computer or smart device at any time at iowaradioreading.org. 
Thank you for listening to IRIS, Iowa's first and only radio reading service.